0: Hi, this is Andrea Harkins at the TheMartialArtsWoman.com. You are exploring the culture, adventure, and impact of martial arts with Sifu T.W. Smith. Hi, welcome to the program. I'm T.W. Smith, and if this is your first time to Come Fu Podcast, I want you to know that you are in the audience of some of the sharpest and the finest martial artists in the world, people that really do take a great deal of care and put a lot of effort into honing their craft. If you're ever looking for more information about me or the program, you can go to KungFuPodcast.com and you'll find all of the supporters and many of the things there that you might be interested in. We're going to pick up where we were following three social cultures. And in those cultures, we would find any sorts of folks, including martial artists, women, and how do they live through this culture? Martial artists, how do they live through this culture? Scholars, and how do they live in this culture? We cannot look at martial artists as if it was a culture all unto itself. These things did not happen in a vacuum. As we have gotten to that point, we are now ready to bring the martial arts back into the global popular culture that's happening during this late imperial time period. Our goal here is to find out how was Chinese martial arts expressed during or within these three different movements as part of the culture. We're going to start with how does Confucianism shape the martial arts? Professor Jenkins writes, One might assume that the hand combat would be shunned in this sector of popular culture given Confucianism's discomfort with martial values. Yet there were probably more martial arts practitioners who emerged out of this social environment than anywhere else. In fact, one could speculate that one of the great failings of the scholarship field has been the lack of attention to how Confucianism informed the ways that ordinary soldiers and militia members thought about their craft. So if we take a moment and think about it, where in the historical record do we find instances of martial artists coming out and responding to the, for example, cult of piety? Many important military officers clearly fit the model. Traditional Confucian models of authority and social order are important for understanding the life of General Qi Ji Gong, because, for example, while he initially included a very now famous chapter on the use of unarmed boxing and the training of military units in the military encyclopedia that he authored as a young man, he actually omitted the same discussion from the much better known second edition that was published much later in his career. Why did he do that? It is quite likely that the more mature officer decided that the subject was not fit for high-level official discussions. After all, boxing itself was a marginal practice that was often seen as being at odds with good social order. Let's take a moment and consider The Loyal Soldier. Perhaps the most obvious place where you're going to see these values played out are in the various clan militias of southern China. Clan structures exist across China, but for reasons that go beyond the point of this particular episode, and they tended to be much stronger and more influential in Guangdong and Fujian. These clans routinely owned large amounts of property and even controlled the local industries. In effect, they functioned both as kinship groups and large private corporations. These clan structures had a need to collect rents, taxes, and to protect their assets from encroachment by other clans. This led these organizations to create their own military organizations. These existed, for example, off the books and were largely independent from state control. Such units would often hire professional martial artists to act both as instructors and as mercenaries to stiffen the ranks of their part-time militia members. It was not unusual for clashes inspired by the economic interest of the various clans to escalate and, of course, turn deadly. When that happened, the state was forced to step in. Of course, the local government had no interest in actually dismantling the clan militia. These family-based fighting units were the basic building blocks that the state-controlled and gentry-led militia system was constructed out of. As a side note, in the upcoming episode, I want to talk to you about exactly that, those family-based militias that, as we were just discussing, were uh, part of the martial artists. Some of them grew up to be the martial artists and would train and stiffen up the ranks. And many of that through the late imperial period, but the first Ming emperor actually passed a law that ensured that Chinese martial artists were going to be born and raised to work. Let's go back to the essay where we were just discussing that the building blocks of the state's militia were these family fighting units. But what's also important is when things go sideways and uh, people are killing one another out there for taxes and rents and property and things like that, it is important to publicly deliver justice, and that's an important component of any good governance. It's not good enough just to do it. you got to do it out in front of the cameras, so to speak, or in those days, I'm assuming, out in the public. So when this happened, the clan that was determined to be responsible for a death or an outbreak of severe violence, that clan would be forced to turn over to the state a number of individuals. Interestingly enough, these were usually not the actual individuals who were responsible for the actual attack, at least if those individuals had any value. Instead, they were much less important male members of the clan who were probably already wanted for some sort of minor offense, so a sacrificial lamb, so to speak, to keep the other one safe. The state could then make a great show of publicly executing these individuals who in effect sacrificed themselves for the protection of the clan as a whole, the cult of piety in full spectrum. Many of our more modern Kung Fu tales also make extensive use of the cult of piety. In the martial novels of Jin Yong, heroes willingly sacrifice themselves for the nation and will go to almost any length to avoid breaking a promise of marriage. Their behavior is in line with the expectations of the cult of piety. Such exaggerated acts function as an important signal to the people who are reading these novels. In normal society, physical violence is frowned upon and it raises serious questions about an individual's character. Yet, an exaggerated sense of loyalty, chastity, or patriotism all demonstrates that a hero is capable of self-denial. In this way, he is able to enact the quintessentially masculine virtue Of the Confucian system. Which now that brings us to another example, the big city boxers. All of this stands in stark contrast to the vision of martial excellence that emerged in the rapidly growing cities of late Imperial China. All of a sudden I'm getting this vision of people gathering to watch a big fight downtown. And of course the average soldier was not paid very much, And it seems that many militia members were making even less than the soldier. So it is fortunate that the urban markets created a new opportunity for a skilled boxer to monetize their skill. We're we're, we're there. I mean, this is exactly the same thing that happens today. Street performers and patent medicine salesmen were everywhere. They use martial arts displays to attract a crowd and sell their wares. That's what I would refer to as luring people in. Opera companies that could only perform a few times a year in the countryside found steady employment in the red-light districts of southern China's cities. Furthermore, inside of the big cities, we have organized crime. And organized crime needs a never-ending supply of muscle. As we have discussed many times on this program, Chinese cities could be very dangerous places, and local businesses took precautions. Boxers were hired as warehouse and pawn shop guards. While these were steady employment, these jobs lacked the prestige and pay of a position as a bodyguard or a position with an armed escort company. Professional martial arts instructors, some were retired from the military, But others from the civilian realm were needed to teach all of these people. And the fact that they were paid in actual money meant that they could, in turn, pay for their instruction. Other urban professions also called upon the expertise of martial artists. It was not uncommon for medical doctors or pharmacists to occasionally employ boxing training as a means of improving a patient's health or their stamina. Some of the most famous martial artists in all of southern China, including Lung Zhang and Wang Fei-hong, actually made their living in medicine. While this connection between traditional Chinese medicine and the martial arts world would become much deeper and much more robust in the Republic era, it is important to note that the roots of this connection can clearly be seen in the thriving urban culture of the late imperial period. If martial arts training was motivated by simply necessity and service to the group in the countryside, when transplanted to the city, it found itself incorporated into the larger structures of the rapidly growing economic markets. One of the other things that happened inside of these big cities and people working at different levels is that a wide variety of instructors, guards, gangsters, performers, and even doctors had an opportunity to mix and exchange notes. In this way, they actually formed their own martial arts subculture, one that was probably quite distinct from the militias and military units that dominated the countryside. It is interesting to also note here that it was this urban faction of hand combat experts who probably contributed the most to the martial arts which were actually passed down to the modern era. And that now brings us to retreating from the world of rivers and lakes. I'd like to take a moment and ask you for your support. If you enjoy this program and like for it to continue to come out more regularly, I could use your help. You can go to KungFuPodcast.com forward slash support, and I have a list of things there that I could use in order to make this program more enhanced. In fact, more enhanced being, for example adding things into your show notes that you can pull up with your podcast player that I have not been able to do for you in the past. Whether it's donating a few dollars, going shopping through our Amazon links, or at the very least, just tell a friend. Any of it helps, and I could really use that. So, KungFuPodcast.com forward slash support. Now, let's get back to the program. When we're looking for martial artists inside of the culture of the late Imperial China, we still have not exhausted the list of social possibilities. We consider the loyal soldier, and we just looked at urban opportunities. As Professor Victoria Cash reminds us, the urbanization of the late imperial period gives rise, if not just enabled, a resurgence of interest in the reclusive life. The most dedicated of these individuals hoped to attain a mystical level of transcendence beyond the concerns of ordinary life by cultivating the proper aura and engaging in certain ascetic practices. No doubt there were others who simply followed the fad as it was fashionable. Professor Cass makes it clear that this movement was so popular that it touched practically every area of Chinese popular culture and social life. And she eloquently and ironically puts it, everyone knew a recluse. Imagine that. Everybody's a recluse and everybody knows them. In what ways do we see these same basic tendencies reflected into the Chinese martial arts of the period? That question gets to the heart of our current controversy. Holcomb explicitly tied the Chinese martial arts to Taoist longevity practices and eccentric, heterodox religious teachers. In effect, he claimed that the reclusive movement, the reclusive current, dominated the development of the Chinese martial arts. Others have argued against this. In basic historical terms, there's a lot more evidence of purely secular practice than Holcomb was willing to admit. But where in the Chinese martial arts do we actually see the influence of the reclusive and mystical school? Again, it would be very odd, if not actually impossible, if this reclusive trend touched all areas of other Chinese popular culture at one time or another, but somehow managed to totally miss Chinese martial arts and boxing. Which brings us to two stories. The first is Zhang Shi who lived from 1520 to 1590. He was a martial artist from the city of Ningbo. Ningbo was an important and very busy port in Zhejiang province, which is just north of Fujian. The oldest and most reliable information we have on Shang Xi comes from Shen Guan, who lived from 1531 to 1616. Shen was a Confucian scholar who served as the emperor's grand secretary from 1594 to 1606. While it is not clear what Shen thought of martial arts in general, he was from Ningbo and he was quite proud of his hometown and its role in fighting off the Japanese. In fact, it was Shen who actually ordered trade with Japan suspended, triggering the piracy crisis that would catapult the future General Kong to national fame. Shin recorded and discussed the careers of some of his hometown local heroes in his essay, The Biography of Boxer Shang Song Shi, which was kind of like a chapter a part of the larger volume titled The Government Records and Annals of Ningbo City. One thing that happens in this chapter is that Shin Iguan makes a note, basically, that Shang Song shi as great as he is and how much he likes him, is not the best-known martial artist from the area of Ningbo. That honor would go to one who was named Bian Chung. But the problem was, is that Bian Chung was an extremely rude fellow. His life did not conform to Confucian values, such as the cult of piety, and instead, Byeong Chung sought fame and wealth and he must have been an extremely unique individual because he managed to find fame and wealth twice. Bian Chung turned to the martial arts to solve his personal problems, and he taught widely without showing any discrimination about the character of the students, So basically, if you come, you pay me, I teach you. On the bright side of this, Bian Chung did manage to defeat a whole group of Shaolin monks that were brought there to help Quell the pirates and that problem, and then they sought to challenge him. But yet and still, our honorable Confucian scholar, Shin Guan, who was from Ningbo, still held Shang Zhangji as being better than that rude fellow, Biang Chong. Shang Zhangji was taught by another formidable but socially unreconstructed local boxer named Sun-13, Shin described Sun-13 as being very rough and brutal. We also know that he valued simplicity and directness. Well, I kind of like that guy. Well, apparently, he also valued theoretical parsimony, a trait still seen in southern China's compact, jewel-like hand combat systems today. Sun-13 claimed that his entire art could be described by just three key words or guiding principles. And his most talented disciple was, yep, you know it, Mr. Shang Song-Chi. Shang Song-Chi was not a full-time professional boxer, but was actually a tailor by trade. Here in the respect of our Confucian scholar Shem, because he took what he learned from his master and he added the dimension of ethical refinement to it. So rather than Sun 13's three principles, Shang Sang Shi taught five, with the last two being ethical and highly Confucian in nature. Let's remember that we're looking at the early to mid-16th century. Whereas the rude fellow beyond had sought fame and brawled with even ill-behaved Shaolin monks, our Honorable Shang Sang was retiring and he refused guests or callers who were interested in learning his martial skills. He spent his time in isolation and favored the life of an eccentric gentleman farmer. This contrast between the two martial arts, Bian Chang and Shang Sangji, from the same hometown of Ningbo is fascinating. Clearly, Bian Chang and Sun 13 represented the social context of the southern urbanism that we were describing earlier. They were professional teachers and they accepted money for their services. They advertised their skills widely and invested in building a reputation that could support them. Shang tsang appeared to take a different path. Not only did he refuse to serve the government, he also withdrew from the life of the city. He is portrayed as having turned towards the reclusive path precisely because he had a richer understanding of the philosophy of boxing. Furthermore, his biographer seems to grant him a certain level of transcendence. Of course, we realize that this is only a single account, but it does indicate that even court historians were willing to admit that martial artists could become recluses or mystics. There are a number of other examples of important martial artists being influenced by the same currents that also come to mind. For example, Chen Shang Yu, famous for his Ming era study of Shaolin fighting techniques, and he spent the better part of his youth following martial monks on their various military missions and studying at Shaolin. Yet Chen Shang Yu was not from a military background. He was a younger son from a well-to-do gentry family. One would normally expect an individual like him to dedicate his life to earning a degree in the imperial exams. But instead, he decided to leave home, live in the mountains, and make a decades-long study of pole fighting. It is hard to imagine any more ascetic route to personal cultivation. There are a lot of things about Qin Shang-Yu's life and his personal motivations that we do not know, and we will probably never know. However, it does seem that one possible strategy for interpreting the facts that we do have would be to situate them within the reclusive current. Like so many other young men in the late Ming, he seems to have developed an interest in the esoteric side of life and to have turned his back on more normal pursuits. Even the title of his volume of work on the Shaolin Finding Arts, which was Techniques for After Farming Pastime, indicates that he was consciously emulating the mode of the outwardly rustic hermit but also inwardly cultured, and that sort of profile which dominated the period's public imagination. Of course, there are other well-known recluses that have been closely tied to the martial arts and the world of Kung Fu fiction. There are countless stories and more creation myths—I'm sitting here thinking of uh, the TV show Kung Fu, I mean a recluse who just wanders around—than many of us could count, right? There's just so many of those stories. They all start when the young hero meets a mysterious monk or some sort of mysterious nun, priest, or hermit on the side of a mountain. Most of these stories are just pure fiction. Yet in both the Ming and the current era, a number of people did go to sacred or wild places explicitly to transcend the concerns of a normal life through one dedicated to practice and natural living. Which brings us to the conclusion of the essay. It may be impossible to give any simple answer to any one individual's question of whether their traditional Chinese martial arts were actually meant to be an effective means of self-defense. Not only did the profession of individual students and practitioners vary, there were other factors that had to be considered as well. The late imperial period saw a number of different trends with the Chinese popular culture. In these two podcasts, we have only reviewed the three, the Cult of Piety, the development and growth of these urban areas, and of course, the return of the recluse. However, if we took even more time or more work, we would have even more areas to explore. And in the upcoming episode, I'm going to share with you a very unique look at the development of martial arts through a different type of social river. But during these three that Professor Cash shared with us and uh, Professor Jenkins explains in the martial arts context, that these currents were broadly based and affected every area of Chinese society. So we should not be surprised to learn that they also had an important impact on the way that traditional martial arts were expressed. In fact, the core values of martial culture could vary tremendously, depending upon whether the individuals in question were coming out of the cult of piety, for example, the new urbanism, or the resurgent rustic tradition. In fact, the core values of martial culture, so what you call the values of your martial arts, would vary tremendously depending upon whether the individuals that uh, were down from your lineage or passing it through were coming out of the cult of piety, the new urbanism, or the current stream of social, resurgent, rustic tradition. If we're going to really appreciate the lives of China's various martial artists, whether they were heroes like General Qijigong, urban instructors like Leung Chung, or reclusive masters like Shang Sang Shi, it is important to situate them within the social landscape of their day. Only then... Can we really understand what they hope to accomplish through the mastery of the Chinese martial arts? So that's the end of Professor Ben Juckins' essay, which you can find all of his work when you go to KungFuPodcast.com forward slash Ben. So how can we apply that? As you all probably know, I'm not much on trivia, so learning things just for trivial reasons really does not interest me at all. If I'm learning things, I want to be able to somehow apply it or put it in a bank account sort of thing of knowledge going, I'm going to probably need that at some point. So to follow your style, you're going to need to trace the martial artist in question through their social and historical context. Let's say, for example, you have a system such as Tai Chi Chuan that certainly has a connection, if not founded, by a military family. But it has also been argued, very effectively, that it has a reclusive origin story as well. But either way, it gets popularized through the exposure to higher levels of urban society. Now it's in the marketplaces, as in the big areas. In that particular Tai Chi example, we're going to put me in this laboratory experiment. Ma Sigong Koli Ying, during the Qing Dynasty, had a distinct martial caravan guard history, and he was not pleased with some of the social urban popularization of some of the arts. His Sigong Yangban Ho, by various accounts, was, let's say, not necessarily a social butterfly either, and had military training duties as part of his resume. Then if we take my Tibetan Lama Pai or Hop Guard training, Sigong Harry Ying, he had a very strong secret society uh, connections that we spoke about in previous podcasts, and as well as military connections with his training. Uh, my Choli Foot came from basically what I would describe as social muscle on one route, and on the other side from a gold rush recluse, Sigong Mar Sik. However, then later I met Lao Pei Jong, who shared the urbanized socially cultured versions of Tai Chi, Bakwa, uh some xing Yi, and mostly long staff with me down in Houston, Texas. What I can share with you, that if you take what we have learned in these past two episodes and apply it to me, and some of the other things we've learned in other episodes, such as every combative martial art that uh, I've ever learned in the past, has a set of principles that it employs to execute that specific art, each with a distinct emphasis that I can teach you with the art. There may be some overlap here and there, but each art comes with a little set of This is how we're going to do it. Now, during our series on the Ji, better known as the Bubishi, the scholars there also reported that various systems, Chinese martial arts systems, had their own purpose or strategy that it was built around. But what I can also share with you is that these socially popularized versions, many times they were kind of meshed together and brushing over the individual combative strategies were done so and done so to emphasize more of the philosophy, for example, of the training or the understanding of movements and health. As we say here all the time. Either of those approaches are fine. You can practice martial arts, for example, as a philosophical way of life, just like a recluse from the Ming period. But you may also want to pursue more strict principles of combat and effective protective skills. Personally, I don't see any reason that you can't enjoy both, because I do. Don't forget that I could use your assistance helping me make this program more available, enhancing it, and letting it grow. Be a part of the team by going to KungFuPodcast.com forward slash support. I'd greatly appreciate it. This is T.W. Smith. Have a fantastic practice today, and I'll be talking with you again real soon.